2: You can visit one of 200-plus vote centers anytime before 8 p.m. today. I'm Jade Hindman with
3: Harrison Patino and for Maureen
2: Kavanaugh, this is
3: KPBS Midday Edition. (music) The city of San Diego is taking a more aggressive approach to move people off the streets and into shelters.
4: We've tried to remove every excuse that there is, for accessing these services. I recognize for some folks, they don't want to do it. The question is for San Diegans, do we want to have our sidewalks serve as housing? The answer is no.
3: A series of workshops to tell you about your First Amendment rights and a check-in on the Fringe Festival. That's ahead on Midday Edition.
5: We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or
4: hohenmotors.com. After all the campaign ads, signs, and mailers, California's primary election is finally here. KPBS will be covering the results in the coming hours, but we wanted to take a few minutes to talk more about this election while ballots are still being cast. Joining me is San Diego County's Registrar of Voters, Cynthia Paz. Cynthia, welcome back to Midday Edition. Thank you. So polls are open today, but voting has been happening for weeks already. What do we know about the voting in this primary so far?
2: Absolutely. So over 1.9 million ballots were mailed out to the county's registered voters nearly a month ago. So many people have already acted on those ballots. We've received back in the office close to 400,000 mail ballots. That will be part of that first election night count tonight, um, shortly after 8 p.m. We've also had vote centers open since Saturday, May 28th. So a full 10 days of early voting has been going on across the county, as well as in-office voting here at the registrar's
4: office. And for those who have not yet voted, what options do they have to vote on time today?
2: It is not too late. Even if you have that mail ballot still in hand, go ahead and mark your selections in the comfort of your home. Seal that ballot inside your return envelope and sign your name on that envelope. You can return it to any one of 132 mail ballot Dropbox locations across the county or at any vote center. We have over 200 vote centers open across the county. They will be open until 8 p.m. tonight. You can also vote in person at any vote center across the county.
4: Every registered voter receives a mail-in ballot. Say if I haven't yet dropped it off or put it in the mail, what's the best way for me to get that mail ballot cast?
2: I would recommend visiting any one of our vote centers or drop boxes throughout the county today. You can find the location closest to you at sdvote.com. We have mapping tools to where you can plug in your address and and it'll show you the closest locations to
4: you. And for those that may have lost their mail ballot, what advice do you have for them?
2: Visit any vote center in the county. You no longer have to go to an assigned polling place. You can visit one of 200 plus vote centers anytime before 8 p.m. today.
4: So the last day to register to vote was May 23rd, but voters can still register even today. Isn't that right?
2: Yes, they can visit any vote center. They will conditionally register and vote provisionally, meaning that their ballot will go inside an envelope. Once we complete the registration and confirm that you haven't voted elsewhere in the state, we will remove that ballot from the envelope and it will be counted.
4: The last time we spoke, you talked about the transition San Diego has gone through to make voting easier and allowing voters more options. Do you feel that you've accomplished what you wanted to in time for this election?
2: Yes. So the Voters' Choice Act is just bringing more convenience and accessibility to voters. It's simply providing more options. Every active registered voter receives a ballot in the mail, and there's multiple days of early voting as well as election day. With the 200-plus vote centers open for multiple days, it just makes it more convenient to get out and vote, whether it's on a weekend or during the week.
4: We saw a sizable jump in voter turnout in the 2020 election. Midterms generally see less voter engagement, primaries especially. How is voter turnout looking for San Diego County so far?
2: It's still looking pretty low. In the 2018 primary, we saw just under a 40% turnout. We're, we may be seeing a little less than that right now. Uh, we anticipate anywhere from a 30 to a 40% turnout in this primary. Rolling off of the recall election just this uh, last year, we saw a 60% turnout. So there has been a dip, but historically we do see that where in gubernatorial primaries, it, it is a lower turnout election.
4: Has anything surprised you about this election so far?
2: The one thing I can say that surprised me is rolling off of that recall election, I would have thought a higher turnout. We saw 60% in the recall. So I thought that interest would still be out there since this is a governor's race. But it, it did seem to wane a little bit. Just folks recognizing that in this election, you're actually selecting the top two vote getters that will run off in November for these seats. Uh, So we're just trying to get the word out there. It's not too late. The polls are open till 8 p.m. Get out there and cast your ballot.
4: As we mentioned, even though today is election day, voting has been underway for weeks already. Does that mean we can expect results to come in earlier as well?
2: Not necessarily. (laughs) So it's been this way for years that come election night, the election is not over Um, So you'll see the results, the initial election night results that we'll post shortly after 8 p.m. That will include all of the mail ballots that we've received prior to election day, as well as the 10 days of early voting that occurred at the vote center. That will be a part of that initial election night count. Then the vote centers will be closing up around 8 p.m., packing up, If any of them have any lines at 8 p.m., then they will need to remain open until every voter in line has, has had a chance to cast their ballot. Once the vote centers wrap up and return their voted materials to the collection centers, those will need to make their way to our office for our central count. So our next second set of election night results will probably occur between 9.30 and 10 p.m. And then the vote centers will continue to roll in. We hope to wrap up our final unofficial election night results by midnight or 1 a.m., just depending on on how heavy the turnout is at closing. And then our next set of results will occur on Thursday by 5 p.m. So any close contest may not be decided election night. Regardless, we will have the final official certified results by July
4: seventh. All right. I've been speaking with San Diego County's Registrar of Voters, Cynthia Paz. Cynthia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria is ramping up efforts to move the city's homeless residents off the streets as reports of encampments are increasing. Mayor Gloria says the city is offering help to those in need as an alternative. We've tried to remove every excuse that there is for accessing these services. I recognize for some folks they don't want to do it. The question is for San Diegans, do we want to have our sidewalks serve as housing? The answer is no. Last week, city workers showed up in downtown's East Village neighborhood unexpectedly to give out citations and warnings, indicating a more aggressive approach than the city has taken in the past. Joining me to talk about the city's shift in enforcement is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Gary Worth. Gary, welcome. Glad to be here. So crew members from the city's Environmental Services Department usually clear sidewalks on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but last week they showed up instead on a Wednesday. What's behind this different approach from the city?
6: Well, it was just to address this growing concern about how many encampments are on sidewalks in that area of the East Village, particularly on commercial and imperial. Um, The sidewalks uh, on both sides of the street are just uh, corner to corner on an entire block filled with encampments, uh, filled with makeshift structures. Uh, You can't walk in the sidewalks and businesses there are concerned um people have raised this issue to the mayor to the city uh at the get it done app they're saying this isn't acceptable anymore and uh in the city view they've been trying to do everything they can to offer different services and shelters for people. They're, you know, Father Joe's and Alpha, they're out there all the time doing their own outreach. Um, But there's just uh, hundreds of of encampments uh, in the area. And there's also a concern that it's just not safe for the people who are living out there. And they're just going to take a more aggressive approach now called progressive enforcement, just trying to encourage people to find another place to be or go into shelters and take offers of services.
4: Now, has there been an uptick in the amount of people living on the streets in East Village recently? Well, there's a
6: lot of people that are down there. It has been pretty high. Over the last few months, there was a slight dip um, this past month, according to a monthly count that's taken by Downtown San Diego Partnership. Uh, In May, they found that there was 1,324 people outside on one night, which was uh, a dip of about 150 but in East Village alone, uh, there were 624 people, which was a spike tip from before. And when you break that down, there's almost 500 people in the area that's in Southeast Village, where, and that includes the area where they're doing the enforcement. And keep in mind, they've got shelter beds that uh, are at 90% full, and every night there's uh, 1,200 people uh, that are in the shelters, but you actually have 1,300 people who are still out on the street in downtown San Diego on one night.
4: You spoke with homeless residents in the wake of this sweep. How are they feeling about this change in tactics?
6: In one sense, they're used to it. Uh, They are often dealing with police. They have gotten used to the idea that there are, you know, routine cleanups that they do. But on Wednesday, it took them by surprise. I just happened to be down there uh, working on another story. And I noticed all these officers there and and notice a city environmental service crews uh, cleaning up the sidewalks, and there was a sign, some signs on posts that said that there would be a cleanup that day, and it was a three hour notice. And, and in some cases, that handwritten sign was on the same post as a metal sign that said there are cleanups scheduled Tuesdays and Thursdays, and that and that's what people had gotten used to. So, yeah, they were taken by surprise, and uh, in some cases, I've heard. From some homeless advocates that they didn't know that this was happening. And when we returned to their site where they had left, there was nothing uh, left for them at uh, on the sidewalk that uh, it had been considered abandoned and taken away.
4: Do we know if any tickets were given out or if anyone was arrested during last week's sweep? Well,
6: yeah, there's often
4: arrests downtown. So uh, last week there was 25 arrests, but
6: 22 of those were for outstanding warrants. And it was like identity theft or assault with a deadly weapon and possession of a weapon or narcotics. Uh, So I saw people getting arrested uh, just standing on the sidewalk. But yeah, it is kind of a common sight. But the majority uh, were from people who did have these outstanding warrants. But there were three people who got arrested for encroachment. And that's after they had been warned, after they had received a uh, a citation, uh, an infraction citation, and then a misdemeanor citation. So it's called progressive enforcement.
4: Is the city looking into alternative options for those who don't accept shelter? They've been talking about that
6: for a while. Just last week, they opened up uh, some beds at a facility at an old motel that they had in South Bay, and uh, that's going to be used for Uh, seniors, um, and it's a non-congregate shelter, meaning they'll have their own room. And by by seniors, I mean people who are 55 and older, but uh, that population, sometimes they do not want to go into a shelter. Um, Now, there's um, going to be a women's shelter that's going to open soon exclusively for for women. Uh, But I think the biggest change that they're looking at is by having uh, safe campgrounds. Now, there are people, as you um, probably are aware, that are on sidewalks in tents and they say, um, do not want to go into a shelter. But when you ask them, well, what if you moved tents tent someplace where it'd be safer um, and you wouldn't get hassled by police uh, and there might be a restroom there and some uh, hand-washing station and they're like, yeah, I would do that. So it's being discussed now. You know, there's money in in the budget for it. Uh, also. Uh, the county set aside $10 million for any city interested in creating their own shelter to, to help them get it off the ground. But that includes any type of shelter, including uh, safe parking lots and safe campgrounds. So it's something that they're looking at. And I think that could have a bigger impact than, you know, just uh, the shelters, because there's so many people who are, are reluctant to go into shelters, but they might be more receptive to this.
4: And what's your sense of how this kind of enforcement will continue? Do authorities have an end goal in mind? It is going to continue. Um, things like this have been
6: successful for reducing the number of people who are living on sidewalks. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the end goal is to get people in a shelter and get people off the street. Uh, but that's a question that was raised at the press briefing just yesterday. Uh, basically, there's a sense of what's the point, um, you know, these is people don't have any money, you're, you're ticketing them, um, making them have fees that they can't pay, or going to put them in jail. And uh, that jail state is very brief, and then they're going to be out on the street again and maybe in a, in a worse off situation. Um, but the city's point of view is you have to at least try uh, because people want action, and this just isn't good for anybody. The situation is dangerous for the people on the street, it's disruptive to businesses in the area, and it's simply preventing pedestrians from using sidewalks uh, so uh, as, as mary gloria said you you have to at least try and it's not gonna accept that we just have to give up our sidewalks uh, though and he said uh, this isn't going to be acceptable on my watch um and he's still saying he's trying to be compassionate trying to offer services trying to offer shelter to people but i guess you might call it a, a carrot and a stick approach uh, though. uh at the same time you have to have some kind of incentive to get people
4: off of where they are all right i've been speaking with san diego union tribune reporter gary worth gary thank you so much for joining us
6: hey anytime thanks
5: hi i'm bill hohen and i'm ted hohen We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
4: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Harrison Patino, in for Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heinemann. Ukrainians are still fleeing their homes as Russia continues to wage war. Some refugees have made it to San Diego. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman tells us about San Diegans who are stepping up to help one Ukrainian family.
7: All right.
8: This dental procedure is months in the making, delayed by war in Ukraine.
9: We are in a very serious and heartbreaking situation. We have nothing other than our travel suitcases, and we are completely dependent on the volunteers helping us.
8: Olena Vorobyova is from Ukraine's capital city, Kiev. She was on vacation in Mexico with her husband and teenage son when Russia invaded. The family sought haven in the U.S. by crossing the border in San Isidro, but there's still no escaping the horrors of war.
9: People don't understand what we're going through. Several times a day, I'm getting text messages from friends and family with deaths of loved ones.
8: Once in San Diego, Viora Biova and her family moved into a host home with La Jolla resident Jane Wehrmeister.
10: I had seen everything that was going on and down at the border, how people were able to come across under humanitarian parole. However, I realized, well, where do they go once they cross the border?
8: Wehrmeister has been helping the family adjust to life here. With a little Google Translate, she learned that Olena was in the middle of a dental procedure before Russia invaded. Unable to return to Ukraine and finish the work, she reached out to the San Diego County Dental Society. They found dentist Alona Gable with Inspire Smiles. Maybe
7: I can't stop the war, but I can make it better for the people who are here. So that was like an immediate yes. You know, I responded right away to email. I called them several times and said, make sure that you put me on, make sure you send them here.
8: Gable is Russian.
7: Me having this unique skill, you know, of speaking Russian, being there for them, right? Being able to communicate and also large part of what we do is to give back. So any opportunity I have to give back, especially considering, again, people are here because of the war, like not by choice, right?
8: Some of Gable's family is still in Russia. Doing dental work on Vorobyova is not without risk.
7: Uh, I'm taking a step of courage. I'm almost certain it's going to negatively impact perhaps my family, but I'm just stepping in courage because again, the principle of what's right is more important."
8: Vorobiova is having four crowns replaced, typically at a cost of around $18,000, but Gable is not charging her, and this isn't the first time she's stepped in to help. Gable's nonprofit Inspire Changes provides pro bono dental restorations for trafficking victims. She measures success on how much she can give and encourages
7: others to do the same. Like be generous, like not just even giving, but like step beyond that and be like extra generous. with time, anything that you can contribute to making another life um, better, I feel is the best way to be in the world. And that's how we can make The world a better place and feel change.
8: (laughs) Vorobyova is thankful for the help, but the disruption of war lingers in different ways. She says in Ukraine, her teenage son is an international karate competitor.
9: As a mom, I feel completely helpless, as I cannot do anything for my child. He is extremely depressed and barely communicates. He locks himself in a room, puts headphones on, and does not even speak to me. He is so young. He can't just sit in a room all by himself without anything to do.
8: Vorobiova wants to be independent, and she's seeking work permits.
9: We want people to understand that we have no say in the situation. We are prisoners of our circumstances. We just want to go home. <laughs>
8: Matt Hoffman, KPBS News.
3: California's Public Records Act says, access to information about the work of public agencies conducted on behalf of the public is a fundamental right. Anything from police body camera footage to salary information and emails can be requested under the law. But that information is not always willingly given, and those who ask for it can be met with legal barriers. A series of webinars beginning Wednesday night promises to teach members of the public how to access those records. They are called Know Your Rights Workshop, and leading them are David Loy, Legal Director of the First Amendment Coalition, and Tasha Williamson, President of Exhaling Injustice. Welcome to you both. Thank you very much.
11: Thank you. It's great to be here.
3: So, David, I'll start with you. This is the first time the First Amendment Coalition has held these Know Your Rights workshops for the public. Why do you see now as a good time to help educate people about issues like access to public records and First Amendment rights?
11: Well, there's never a bad time to educate and empower the community, but we see now above all other times how transparency, access, and accountability are crucial to supporting Uh, advocacy and social change. Certainly, they're not sufficient to promote change, but they're absolutely necessary for advocates and activists of all stripes to empower and educate them to hold government accountable and pursue uh, the change that they seek.
3: And from both of you, I mean, can you talk about how members of the public have used the Public Records Act, public comments and open meetings and protests to really bring about
12: change? What we've done on an activist level um, and even some nonprofit organizations is that we've mobilized and uh, really um, organized uh, to build movements uh, to create change by getting community members out to public meetings to talk about the things that they want. Um, And the demands that they have for their politicians to change and then also public records requests when uh, incidents occur, um, whether it be from police or city council or city attorneys or district attorney's office, um, that people have the right to know. And David?
11: It is the first duty of democratic government to be accountable to the people and knowledge is power without the knowledge contained in public records, without the uh, ability to protest and advocate protected by the first amendment and without the access to open meetings guaranteed by the Brown act. uh, The public is significantly uh, challenged in its ability to uh, protest and advocate and, and to demand social and political change.
3: And the first workshop this week is an introduction to California's Public Records Act and how to use it. Uh, can you give us some examples of the type of information members of the public can bring to light with the use of the Public Records Act, David?
11: Most recently, for example, here in San Diego, uh, the First Amendment Coalition supported Tasha and Exhaling Injustice in Uh, forcing the city of San Diego Police Department to disclose uh, video and audio recordings of the shooting of Rosa Calva two years ago. Uh, Tasha had requested those uh, documents, those records over two years ago, and the police department had stonewalled until we forced their hand. And, you know, the public can decide for itself whether it believes that shooting was justified. The police department had determined it was within policy. The district attorney uh, declined to press criminal charges. But the point of transparency laws is that the public is entitled to the full story, not just the one side of the story that the police want to put out in their press release or the side of the story that the district attorney wants to tell in its a letter declining to charge. The public has a right to see those records, those videos for itself, particularly on an issue so compelling as police use of deadly force against a mentally ill woman.
3: And you all have certainly shed light on this, but Tasha, how difficult was it for you to get those records in the end? I mean, they were Mm -hmm. just released last month, about two years after the shooting.
12: Yeah, it was difficult. You know, uh, they kept, uh, first of all, they, um, did not respond in the manner uh, that they were supposed to uh, with the public records request. They had 10 days. They went over that uh, repeatedly. Um, And then, um, you know, they withheld it. The first uh, withholding, um, they said it was in the best interest of the public. And then they went into, um, you know, personnel information could be withheld for police officers. And then they kept going Um, SB 16, uh, Senate bill 16 uh, was passed and, Basically, says that uh, you can release that. So does SB 1421. Um, You know, we had uh, AB 392 um, and all these other subsequent bills. Um, I'm finding it extremely difficult for police to be um, transparent and release uh, footage um, when they are um, in bad light, when it does not make them look good. Uh, and so this was one of those instances, uh, and we just kept pushing. I was so thankful that FAC, um, uh, First Amendment Coalition, was able to step, step up um, like no other organization has um, to really fight for us to get um, and win uh, the right for transparency in these records uh, to be completely released. But some records may be given willingly. Uh, David, what are
3: some other types of public records that members of the public might want access to that might not be so difficult to obtain?
11: Well, things like uh, budget documents, public employee salaries, uh, public contracts. Um, There's a, you know, public agencies are, you know, complex entities, and they generate a multitude of records as they go about their business. And the premise of the California Public Records Act and of all freedom of information laws is that when when doing the public business, the public has a right to know what the agency is doing.
3: The workshop on Wednesday is the first of three. The next workshop is on June 15th and focuses on understanding your First Amendment right to protest.
12: What will people learn in that workshop, Tasha? Uh, They'll learn um, what you can and cannot do uh, during a protest. We have a number of activists who are um, going back to court uh, who were arrested um, from a protest. And so I think that uh, it is extremely important that activists know the do's and don'ts um, of protesting and what they may be up against, what they have a right to do and uh, should continue to do. So that is why we are doing this, because it's very important that people are informed so that they can better understand the laws and know how to you know uphold their
3: rights. And the third workshop on June 22nd is about raising awareness about injustices through public comments and government meetings. Uh, Tasha, can you tell us about why this one is also important for people to learn about?
12: Yeah, I think that um, for me, uh, you know, going to city council meetings and board of supervisor meetings um, and public safety, livable neighborhood meetings, trying to understand the Brown Act, also trying to understand, you know, what kind of comments can be made and why do they, you know, change the rules. And uh, so, you know, for people who are, are really layman to the city government and the understanding of city government, I think this meeting is really um, one of the first meetings to really talk about how all that works um, and what that looks like and how people can be empowered to begin to start going to meetings or continue to go to meetings um, and leverage their rights uh, in a different way and more effective way. I've been speaking with David
3: Loy, Legal Director of the First Amendment Coalition and Tasha Williamson, President of Exhaling Injustice. Thank you to you both. Thank you.
11: Thank you very much.
3: The first Know Your Rights webinar is on June 8th at 6 p.m. It's free and open to the public. For more information and a link to register, go to kpbs.org. California's fast food workers are walking off the job Thursday to demand better working conditions. The Service Employees International Union and its Fight for 15 and a union campaign are organizing the strike. They're hoping to raise awareness about Assembly Bill 257, which is up for a vote in the state Senate this summer. Advocates say the legislation would create protections for California's 550,000 fast food workers Including those right here in San Diego. Joining me is Crystal Orozco, a fast food worker with Fight for 15, participating in the walkout on June 9th. Crystal, welcome. Thank you. So, can you tell me what Assembly Bill 257 would do for fast food workers and what exactly will be happening on June 9th?
10: So, for the AB 257, it'll give us workers the opportunity ability to talk directly with the company and not jump through hoops with the management and not be worried about getting retaliated against. It will give most of us that that extra help we need because there's a lot of people on the job who are not able to talk out of fear of retaliation. For June 9th, uh, we're gonna go out and myself, I'm gonna go to the headquarters of Jack in the Box and um, we're gonna go protest over there and let them know that we are serious about AB 257 and we will not be silenced. Uh, we are serious about this bill and, um, because we really need it in this industry.
3: And why is it important to raise awareness now?
10: Well, for me, it's mostly um, the pandemic really opened my eyes about what's really going on here and how little they take in consideration of what's going on in um, the stores and how far up it goes in the company when it comes to actually voicing our, our complaints or opinions and you know, worrying about our safety is a bigger, another bigger issue that was brought to more light uh, during the pandemic. You know, and then nobody's holding these companies accountable for their their actions that they're taking and the little regards they have for their lo- the their employees who are the ones who are helping them make their money.
3: And you know, what are some of the realities for fast food workers?
10: What have you been experiencing? Uh, uh, for myself, it's been wage theft. So uh, I work. I always worked graveyard um, ever since I did do fast food. And when I worked, they never gave me my uh, 10-minute breaks, nor my 30-minute breaks. Um, There's only two of us on the job, so we didn't get that opportunity. You know, there's a lot of people who are like that in the industry. They don't tell you these things. They just throw you in blindly and, you know, take advantage of wherever they see that they they can do it. And also, uh, safety was a big issue during the pandemic, and especially right now um there's a lot more people more aggressive for them they take it on whoever they can. the people though, when they get off work it's the first people they see sometimes it's us the faster people, and this is who they're taking it out on. you know some of my sister stores um I heard stories about them getting shot and constantly getting harassed and it's a big safety thing, and you know nobody's doing nothing, and they say they have all these numbers and things available to us, but there's no, they don't tell us when we first start working there. They don't let other people, new people, people who don't understand uh, the rights, they don't tell them. Hmm.
3: And why do
10: you think it's been
3: so difficult to get the safe working conditions and just better working conditions you all have been asking for?
10: Well, for me, I personally think it's the penny pitching. Um, they say they can't afford it or, you know, it's too much, but yet they're they're constantly raising prices and everything stays the same in the store. It's just going filtering straight to them. They make all this money. I've seen sales before just in one day and it's, you know, kind of up there. And I know they have uh, stuff to pay, but, you know, they can't even get an AC fix for most of the stores. And they doing these little tiny fixes when they tell us that it needs to be replaced completely. Uh, you know, just uh, they can't even pay us livable wages. You know, there's a lot of people struggling working two, three jobs. To them, it's just excuses for, you know, not paying us that they can't afford it, but they can.
3: Are fast food workers the only people participating in Thursday's walkout?
10: No, I think most of the people who are are, um, with the, the unions, a lot of people are that I know are from different places. They are supporting us in their ways. And yes, most people who are walking out are the fast food.
3: What can people expect when they stop into their local fast food eateries on Thursday?
10: Maybe shorter staff than usual. Um, We're always short staffed, but still, um, you know, they'll see most of us, you know, uh, protesting, showing them that, you know, that we're there and they need us as much as we need them. So what message do you all want to
3: send to Sacramento?
10: Uh, I just want the senators to help support AB 257. I want them to have our backs and let them. I want them to understand that we do need this bill passed. Just because we're fast food doesn't mean uh, we don't deserve safe working conditions and livable wage. I've been speaking with Crystal Orozco,
3: a fast food employee with the Fight for 15 campaign, who will be participating in the fast food walkout on Thursday. Crystal, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.
5: We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
4: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Harrison Patino, in for Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heinemann. San Diego International Fringe Festival is at the Midway Point. One show that will debut on Friday is a chamber opera called Aftermath at the bring-your-own-venue of The Template in Ocean Beach. KPBS arts reporter Beth Acamando speaks with composer Nicholas Ravelis about creating an opera during the pandemic that deals with lockdown and a non-binary character.
13: Nick, you are participating in Fringe this year with an opera called Aftermath. So explain to people what this is going to be about.
0: It's a vignette about two characters who confront each other across a sliding glass door on the patio of a contemporary upscale home in Mission Beach during the second or third year of a pandemic lockdown and the aftermath of a tactical nuclear attack on a military base in the area. I really wanted these characters to be locked down and to be completely isolated and have to make decisions within that social context. And that's what most interested me about going into this story and and dealing with these two characters. I just, I wanted to see how they would react if what we were experiencing during the lockdown ourselves was multiplied by about 100, right? So that's what it's about. It's this simmering conversation between these two characters. Ruth, who is um, well off, is a very successful self-help book writer, a yogi living in grandeur, in a way, on this beachfront property, who probably has two years worth of food and goods and water in her garage, and this street kid who is trying to eke out some kind of subsistence with their um, you know, gang breaking into grocery stores and liquor stores and restaurants, trying to find what they can, canned goods to eat, to stay alive. And these characters coming from two completely different uh, social strata, how will they deal with this together?
13: And you are sitting at a piano right now, so I would like to ask you if you want to play something that demonstrates maybe how you use music to sort of build the darker themes maybe of this piece and kind of build some of the tension that's going on.
0: The very opening, I think, presents a kind of mysterious questioning presence. It opens with Ruth. Staring out this plate glass window and then closing her eyes and remembering better times on the beach when she would see couples walking up and down the boardwalk and kids playing soccer in the sand. So I wanted a a feeling of memory, but also a feeling that something may be happening here. There's no root, <laughs> you know, it, it floats. It has a kind of an ambiguous feeling to it, and I love entering the story there. And then she begins to reminisce. In the sun, it's the sounds that I love the most, the shuffling of sneakers and sandals, the rhythm of the joggers. You know, She's just going back and remembering what it was like pre-pandemic, and certainly before this nuclear event. And I think it captures that. And I, this is what I love about writing theater music, not just opera, but theater music in general, is trying to really capture the drama, the mood, the emotions of the characters, and what's, what may even be underneath all of that. Something a little bit more obvious, because Evan travels up and down the boardwalk with this gang of skateboarders that Ruth calls skateboard surfers. I wanted to come up with music that would try to describe the sound of the wheels of the skateboards going down the boardwalk. I said, "You, I can't avoid that, and I didn't want to just use a sound cue, although we'll probably use both. But um, that rolling figure, this is what came to me. Which I thought was kind of a fun rhythmic thing to imitate that almost uneven character of the wheels of the skateboard running on concrete <laughs> on that wonderful boardwalk. So things like that I get excited about. I love the detail of it. I love trying to figure out well, how am I going to get this across without being maybe too obvious. I just I really really love that kind of work.
13: And we're going to have you play a little bit of one of the songs. So set this up.
0: Yes this is Evan's first aria where they explain who they are, where they're from, and what they're about. Evan is a non-binary character who has been running with this skateboard gang, and so in this aria, they explain to Ruth who they really are, that they're not completely accepted and in fact have experienced some rejection from the rest of the members of the gang. I'm really excited that uh, the singer singing the role of Evan is Lucia Leon, who is a trans woman, singing tenor. And opera audiences would most often think that a tenor is always a male, not so. Opera audiences, however, are very familiar with the gender-bending and sex exchange of roles that has happened since opera began male singers singing female roles and and vice versa. And it's actually more common that mezzo-sopranos will sing a a trouser role or a pants role, the role of a young man or a boy. Lucia's tenor voice is so beautiful and so perfect also for this non-binary character.
1: I'm not one of them. I grew up here on the beach. Skating, surfing, I like to think that I belong, but there were bigger dreams
7: holding
1: me. I went away to college, pre med, grad school. Both those dreams were dashed with a virus. I had to stay in the field, adjust jobs hospitals, doctors' offices, nursing homes, but everything stopped
7: in that fatal
1: The bombs dropped. The Kang. I tried everything to keep up with them. Everything, everything to join. wouldn't work. He just won't work. I'm always the last one, the outsider. Always the last one. Always the last one. The outsider. The outsider.
13: What made you want to tackle an issue like this, and a story like this, through opera?
0: I'm a great believer that you can approach anything through opera. (laughs) I I absolutely believe in the genre. I think, uh, you know, when you sing things, the story, the drama is more heightened, it becomes more important, it becomes bigger, and I like that, the bigness of that. Even in chamber opera, as this is, and even in a chamber space, as the space where we'll be performing it, the template in Ocean Beach uh, is small, but I like that the emotions have the space to explode and and get bigger. Also, I originally intended it to be a piece that expressed my own experience of the pandemic. I began it towards the end of the first year of the pandemic in, in late 2021, I started it as a horror story because, as you know, I love the horror genre and that's kinda where I was going, but then the characters took over and became so much more interesting to me than the background or anything horror-filled or horrible happened to them. Their conversation took over and I decided, no, that's more interesting, I'm gonna go with that and let's see what happens with these two characters as they confront each other from their lenses, from their two particular worlds. Uh, And I, I just felt felt better about that and feel even better now that it's finished and it's actually beginning to be produced And I'm hearing it outside of my head. It makes a lot of sense I'm glad I made that decision
13: and you are part of fringe But you are part of the what they call BYOV which is bring your own venue and you're working with Bodhi Tree Concert So talk a little bit about this collaboration.
0: Bodhi Tree Concerts is based in La Jolla. Uh, Walter Jamel and Diana Vassell um run and founded Bodhi Tree. I have worked with them on and off as a pianist in a number of um, uh, concerts that they presented and they have themselves presented a fringe opera prior to this and had so much success with it I approached them when I finished this piece I said would you would you like to produce a new opera and had them come over and listen to it and played it for them. And and they were on board right away, which was terrific. But yeah, they're producing it and we're using fringe as, you know, a sort of umbrella for audience. And um, we decided we wanted to be in control of our own venue. So we wouldn't have other groups coming in and we'd have to break down and, you know, build back up after they use the venue. So um, we're at the template, as I said, which is a coffee house, in Ocean Beach and is absolutely the perfect venue for this piece because the piece does indeed happen in San Diego on Mission Beach. We couldn't find a venue in Mission Beach, but we found this one in Ocean Beach. It's close enough and you can still smell the salt air and it still has the, uh, the ambiance that we were looking for being, being close to the ocean and being really emblematic of San Diego life in a San Diego neighborhood.
13: Although Aftermath is not technically a horror opera, you are working on a trilogy of horror operas, and where are those at?
0: (laughs) The trilogy of horror operas is actually complete as of about six weeks ago, and San Diego Opera is going to produce an evening of three one-act operas all within that horror genre in April next year during the, the, the upcoming season at San Diego Opera. Uh, I'm very excited about that to be produced by my home company. But yeah, those are more appropriately horror. This opera began as a horror story, but I backed off once the characters sort of captured me and it became something quite different. So the horror is in the background and, and the opera became more about the character in the trilogy of horror operas entitled Ghosts that San Diego Opera will produce next year. The horror is up front and center.
13: And what attracts you to these darker themes?
0: When I was eight years old, my mother sat myself and my brother in front of the television set KTLA from Los Angeles and watched the first broadcast of James Whale's Frankenstein on television and from then on i was hooked on horror and i still try to get everything that i possibly can of the genre uh the stories novels movies especially i don't know what it is really but there's something about about the darkness and about being scared and about telling a story that might frighten people even just a little bit Uh, That I've always enjoyed I always enjoyed telling campfire stories and writing horror stories And even with an old mate eight millimeter camera making my own werewolf film when I was 12 You know, I was just I love that stuff. And so now that I'm grown up (laughs) I haven't gone very far away from it, but it's a little bit more sophisticated now. I hope
13: (laughs) Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about aftermath.
4: Thank you, Beth that was Beth Acamando speaking with Nicholas Revelas. His chamber opera Aftermath runs Friday through Sunday as part of the San Diego International Fringe Festival. For more coverage of Fringe, go to KPBS.org/cinemajunkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by
0: Under the Sun Foundation presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs featuring
8: temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at CandlewoodArtsFestival.org.